Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I just want to thank you so much. You guys have been so, so amazing and supportive. This last episode of Kevin Hart has just brought the show into a different stratosphere as far as the ratings and podcast and how many people have listened and it's broken all sorts of records and it's all because of you and your support and your time that you've given to listen and subscribe and tell your friends and your family and it just meant the world to me and i'm very very grateful and i just want to thank you all so so much it just it means the world to me and as always as you know i normally start off the show when i'm looking at my guest and share some kind of cold open that comes off of the top of my head and all i can say about my guest today who is jay moore who you're gonna love and he was so so funny is he's always been a guy who i looked at as somebody who was a giver a guy who always tried to give of himself to other comedians and try to support the craft and the people around him, whether it be comedians like Ralphie May and Bert Kreischer, who he put on the road with him to open up for him. They were just great comedians who did a great job with him and became headliners themselves and big, big stars themselves to many, many actors that he gave roles to in movies that he produced. 
to last comic standing where he broke so many young comedians who then became big stars and headliners all over the world. And my relationship with Jay is very unique because we've been working together for a quarter of a century. And you wouldn't think that an artist is a giver when it comes to a management artist relationship. You'd think they were a taker. But no, Jay Moore is a giver. And I'm going to tell you a little story about how he's a giver and how it indirectly affected me and how it indirectly affected all of you who listen and who are a supporter of this podcast. So when it was time for him to decide whether he wanted to do a podcast or not, and he finally figured it out and made the steps necessary to launch his podcast, I get a call from him and he says, Barry, I'd like you to do my first episode. I say, Jay, come on, man. I'm not a celebrity. I've never done a podcast. I don't do interviews. Listen, find somebody else. It'll be much better. He said, be at my garage at seven. I said, Jay, that's not my thing. I'm not that kind of person. I think you should get a celebrity. That's your thing. You're great around all these people who are household names. He said, Barry, be at my garage at seven. And so on July 6, 2011, I do his first podcast and something really, really bizarre happens. It's the number one show in the world that day that it launches. And I am the recipient riding on Jay Moore's coattails of a guy who has over 500,000 people who've listened to me talking about the business. And I was just so, so happy and so excited that he gave that opportunity to me, which is an unusual opportunity for a manager to have. And I didn't think anything of it until a week later when I got the call from him. He said, Barry, I want you to do my third show. I said, Jay, I'm not doing the third show. I did the first show. You got to have guests. You got to rotate things in and out. He said, Barry, I'll see you in my garage at seven. And so I did the third show, again, the number one show when it launched two weeks later. And then I did the seventh show and the 23rd show and the 47th show and the 54th show and on and on and on. And I did about 15 of his shows. And in the span of a few short years, over 4 million people listened to episodes that I was on with Jay Moore. And the feedback was amazing that I was getting. And for him, the feedback was so great as well. And we had this unique chemistry together. But he kept encouraging me to do more. He kept encouraging me to launch my own podcast. And when it came time to really think about things and decide whether I should do it or not, because so many people told me not to, because they thought it would be bad for me, bad for the business, bad for the relationship with my clients. Jay Moore came to me and he said, Barry, don't listen to anybody else. Listen to your gut. Listen to what you're feeling inside. Look at all the feedback we've had. Look at all the incredible audience that we've drawn from this. People want to hear what you have to say. They want to hear your interviews with the people that you know in the business. And because of him and his push and his inspiration and his generosity, 
when he didn't have to be that way. He could have been a guy who said, hey, cats, I don't want you doing that. I don't want you taking any time away from anything that could possibly affect my career. Yeah, I know you're doing in your spare time. But hey, maybe on a Sunday you might be doing something for me. But he didn't say that. He was supportive of it. He pushed me hard. And he got me to go forward and do it through my own gut and his wisdom and his kindness and his generosity. I launched my show. And I'll never forget that day. It was in July of 2013. I had Doug Herzog as my first guest, the president of Viacom Entertainment, and one of the nicest guys in the world who was the president of Fox when Jay did Action, my first show I ever executive produced. And I'll never forget that day because I get a call from Jay. He was at the radio station. And he says, Bear, I want you to come over. I need to talk to you. I said, Jay, I'm kind of busy. I can't really come. He says, Barry, please come to the radio station. I get there. He takes his headphones off on a break. He takes his laptop and he points to something on iTunes. And I look at where his finger is and it says industry standard number three. And I was just blown away because I knew that it never would have happened without his generosity and his support. And it was a really, really beautiful moment that we had. And I was leaving, and then he took me next to him, and he put a hand on each shoulder. You know, somebody does that, and they look you straight in the eye. And he looked at me with that wry smile on his face, and he said cats i love you and i said jay i love you too thank you so much and i'm about to leave and he squares me up again and looks me in the eye and he says hey cats i said yeah jay he said you're not supposed to do better than your fucking clients and he walked out the door <laughs> And of course, he was joking, but the bottom line here is this. In your life, if you have a chance to be a taker or you have a chance to be a giver, do your best to be a giver. And I can guarantee you, you'll have a shot at the kind of career that Jay Moore has. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Before I get started, I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I'd ever done in my life. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. 
and his story is unbelievably extraordinary. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago when he was in his early 20s, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas to help them get where they needed to go, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. And I'm telling you, go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary. It will blow you away. And in honor of everybody who does go and get a copy of this special what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose one person randomly from that group of people and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, if they're out of the country or out of state, I will Skype them in, I will FaceTime you in, and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary. I guarantee you, never been seen before, and it will blow you away. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard. I'm very excited today because we have a really, really great show with a guy who I have represented for 25 years, and I'm talking about Jay Moore. It's going to be an amazing episode. And I know you're going to like it a lot. So without further ado, I'm going to give him the introduction that he deserves. And when he wakes up, we'll have an amazing podcast. <laughs> Jay Moore is the rarest of entertainers, actor, best-selling author, TV show creator, executive producer, and TV host. And a guy who's been performing stand-up comedy since he was 16 years old with a career that spans several decades. After landing his dream job on Saturday Night Live, it appeared as though Jay had reached the height of success, but two years later, he would be cast opposite Tom Cruise and Jerry Maguire, and then co-star with Jennifer Aniston in Picture Perfect. Since then, Moore has brilliantly balanced both acting and stand-up comedy, as well as other entertainment genres, as roommates in his brain. He's appeared in over 25 films starring opposite 13 Academy Award winners. Among the movies you may have seen him in are Go, directed by Doug Lyman, Pluto Nash with Eddie Murphy, Suicide Kings with Christopher Walken, Simone with Al Pacino, playing by Hart with Ellen Burstyn and Angelina Jolie, and Hereafter, directed by Clint Eastwood and starring opposite Matt Damon. In television, he starred in his own groundbreaking series produced by Joel Silver and the late Ted Demi called Action and the critically acclaimed CBS comedy Gary Unmarried, as well as hosting and creating the Emmy-nominated NBC show Last Comic Standing. Additionally, he's continuously added other genres to his journey, writing the best-selling books Gasping for Airtime and No Wonder My Parents Drank, which was optioned by ABC for development of a sitcom based on its content. Legendary TV producer Dick Wolf said of Moore, He's really good. 
It's kind of odd because he's known as a comic, yet he oftentimes works in highly dramatic roles that a lot of dramatic actors would have a very hard time eschewing, and he does a great job. You know, it's like if you're playing tennis against a club champion, your game should go up. The better the competition, the better the game, and I think Jay Moore really comes to play. In L.A., Jay is the host of the L.A. Rams pregame show on ABC7, his national radio show, Jay Moore Sports, which is part of a murderous row lineup of Jay, Dan Patrick, and Colin Cowherd, syndicated all over the country in 150 markets, and his well-known, highly acclaimed podcast, More Stories, which has been downloaded over 40 million times. All right, without further ado, I'd love to introduce my guest, a man who, without him, I doubt I would be ever doing this podcast that you're listening to right now. Please welcome a friend, a client, and a man I admire, Jay Moore. Any more cars on that train, cats? Good Lord. <laughs> the whole family's watching the train go by. Let's count the cars. <laughs> That was longer than Dave Chappelle at a roast. <laughs> Good God. Am I being Is this my funeral? You may know him, uh, <laughs> knew him, capital H, the son of God, man. <laughs> J. Christ of Nazareth Moore, Ferguson Valley. What? <laughs> Hold on. We got some more trains coming by, man. Santa Fe. I just want to let people know how special you are. You put it together in uh, editing. People think it was all one shot. <laughs> People know you leave for a restroom break and come back. Oh, my God. I can't hold it anymore, man. <laughs> Camp Wilder. <laughs> Four decades. When Barry used to uh, MC, you were exceptional. I'm not joking. You were very funny. As a comedian MC. Yeah, you were really funny. And there's so many people that think they're, that say they're actually comedians and they make a wage and they're not at all. And you would just go, uh, <laughs> how about the people over here, round of applause, look at this guy. Make me laugh, you big blonde Jew, make me laugh. <laughs> These people hate me. <laughs> but you always had the best standard intro of a guy who had no credits. As an 18-year-old, I didn't have any credits. He's one of the greatest comedians in the country, and you're about to see why. <laughs> it's like the best. I'm not joking. Like, it was really exceptional. Everyone's like, oh, okay. But what happens if you got up there and you had nothing? You wouldn't have been introducing them in your club. Well, one's a comic, you're like, Stu Kamen's, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, Todd Barry. Oh, hey, uh, <laughs> I'm going to do Jay Moore's podcast to sell my album for $5, but not follow him into any jokes at all. <laughs> Apologize. Remember the joke you did? No, I don't. <laughs> Okay. Do you do a lot of podcast interviews where people don't give you anything? Are you talking about the More Stories podcast? That is yes, a free app? I'm sorry. The More when Stories podcast. When are you going to get an app? Maybe when I can get somebody to advertise and then they'll design it for me. Don't put the cart before the horse, man. <laughs> when you get a nice app, build your following first. Why don't you invest some money in your own product? <laughs> That's what you said to me a year and a half ago. You're full of shit, and I'm going to tell you why. <laughs> <laughs> you remember that? Yes. Um, Barry's doing more stories podcasts, and I go, you know that James Brown song? I got mine. The lyric, I got mine. I don't worry about his. He goes, you're full of shit, and I'm going to tell you why. <laughs> you do worry about his. 
if you knew no internet, you had no idea who Adam Carolla, Mark Marin, Chris Hardwick were, no ratings. <laughs> the only thing you would say to me is, Cats, this, this podcast is changing lives. It's unbelievable. I'm undeniable. And instead, you're telling me he had Jeff Bridges three times, man. <laughs> you were alluding to the point in time that you were thinking of stopping your podcast because you didn't think that you were getting the right guest and you didn't feel like you were making your presence felt as much as you thought you could. Numbers uh, don't lie unless it's ratings or a judge in like the Olympics. Like you watch the diving in the Olympics, like 14 people in a row. Somehow there's two points separating all these flips and twists, and you're like, oh, I thought they were all, I can't do it one and a half at my mom's pool without hitting my back and turning red. <laughs> the announcers go, oh, no. <laughs> I'm like, I look good. <laughs> so you look at the ratings, it's like, you're 50th. It's like, how? We don't know. There's some weird, and like Nielsen ratings. And yeah. I was just uh, 50th going, out of 375,000 podcasts. I'm not in the 50th business, and that's and neither are you. We, as Greg Fitzsimmons said on More Stories podcast, I realized the other night I'm on the road, I'm back at my hotel. We have to be perfect. One fucked up sentence, and they go, ah, yeah, right. And you're like, and then you gotta get them back. So, yeah, but we got a talent booker finally. And, um, you're the guy that said, why don't you just go in your pockets and invest in yourself? No talent booker. <laughs> you don't even close the garage door. <laughs> There's a fucking chihuahua running up the street chasing a drone <laughs> with cold hot dogs taped to the bottom. And it's all in there when you're talking to, uh, to Anthony Bourdain. <laughs> well, I just felt that you were taking on so much responsibility because... You do everything. There isn't one lane of show business that you don't do. And then you're taking on the booking responsibilities and you're booking every guest. It's a little much. I know. Look at me. <laughs> I have bags under my eyes. You're aging like Clinton in the White House. It's unbelievable. Ah, uh, presidential portraits. <laughs> it's not just me, Barry. And I'm very glad you brought that up. <laughs> if you look at Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> you ever see Abraham Lincoln's portraits? No. Wow. I think maybe it was a mercy killing. <laughs> like his hair's all fucked up. He's got mud on his suit. He's like depressed. He'd be out working in the garden and be like, time for your portrait. He'd go, all right. <laughs> so look at any presidential portrait, first year, second year, third year, fourth, like just look at Obama. It's like mud bone. <laughs> when I first met the boy, get some uh, sunshine on your face. It's free, man. Your host. You do radio, you're great on talk shows, you act in sitcoms, you executive produce, you act in films, you produce movies, you do stand-up. There isn't anything that you don't do. You have a radio show that reaches 150 markets. What's your favorite lane that you work in presently? It's going to surprise you, I think, and I, surprising you is very difficult. Publishing a book is impossible. Barely get out of high school in New Jersey public school with guidos and spray tans and IROX. You can just get like a Hyperion or Simon and Schuster to go, here's some money, write that thing you told us about. And you just you put your kid to bed, you go up, you write for like an hour, you or sometimes you go longer, sometimes you don't write at all, and then it's done. And when somebody says to me, I was at Chicago O'Hare Airport 
coming back from, I don't know where, it was a layover. And it was a family. It was a mom and dad and two boys. And the wife goes, would you say hi to my husband? It's like a young, cool couple. She said, he loves your two books. And I go, yeah. And the guy goes, oh, my God, I love your book. Like, he didn't know I was an actor at all. So to be recognized for something you write, and then they have to buy it, then they have to hold it up, read it, and pro- just written by, and they go, that's the guy. Is the strangest, and it's the most proud. Like sitcoms, like, yeah, I would hope you see it. It's in your home. But to get a book and be... Books are like, it's tactile. You hold it, put it down, pick it back up, bring it on vacation. You can't bring Gary on Mary to Kona. Until now, man. <laughs> Spin the wheel. <laughs> Gary on Mary to Kona. Oh, he said presently. I'm not writing anything presently. People are going to go, ooh, it's coming out. That's not true. You're writing a project. Uh, yeah, no, that doesn't get spoken about. Let me give anybody, a, you have a lot of industry folks listening. Yes, I do. If you talk about it, it gets weaker. You're dehydrating something. Like the more somebody talks about something... In this town, it just lessens. It's like uh, having something on a dimmer in your house. And they go, hey, I got that, uh, I got that movie I'm writing. <laughs> Little next day. They never tell you about the movie. I'm, <laughs> what are you doing? I got this. <laughs> and then you're just walking around with a fucking empty bulb and everybody knows you're not doing it. Why, in your opinion, the more you talk about something, the lesser the benefit is to your career? Because the more you talk about it, you keep it alive in an artificial space in like an alternative reality of this thing is happening. But in reality, you're talking about it because you haven't sat down to start it. You're not halfway through it. We used to have a guy we hung out with go, I'm on page 30. Like he told you the page number. And when you speak about it at lunch, you're at Jerry's Deli and you go, hey man, I got this album coming out. All I got to do is add a drummer and drum tracks. And you've created this thing with your voice and your words. Your thoughts have now been shared with another person. There's a connection. They go, oh, wow, their face changes. They have that data. They may share it across town. They make it an airplane, go to Florida and go, you know, Jim's got a, an album out. He's coming. And then somebody in Florida. But that dies quickly and quietly. So if you don't talk about it, I think it keeps getting more power and you must do it because you're the only one with the knowledge of the characters of where the story could go and then you get so excited you just you have to just get it out and i shared something with you once i did on my oh my god don't ever write on an ipad oh my god <laughs> i took my ipad to a corporate gig in orlando and just from lax to orlando i'm like cats check it oh my hands <laughs> I, got, I do a sling. Literally, I do a sling. I couldn't open my hand from going tap, 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 tap. Here, I got it. Take it down to the copy out of the stat. Zing. Ow. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. 
no one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. One of my greatest memories of my life was when no one knew you were writing the Gasping for Airtime book, and you would send me chapters. You've always been like a father figure to me, and you and I have shared the most intimate, private details, including deaths, failures of our entire lives. So me sharing it with you, you were the guy. I would call you and read it aloud. It meant so much to me. I'm like choking up. Well, another thing that makes me choke up, and I'm choking up, is that one of my greatest memories I have is one of my saddest memories when I was in a hotel room with you and told you that Charlie Barnett had passed away, one of the greatest street performers of all time, Noogie from Miami Vice. DC Cab. DC Cab, the guy with the curlers in his hair. He was just an inspirational kind of character that you just loved in New York City. And when he died, I remember us both like hugging each other, weeping, hysterically shaking. You saw this guy perform in Washington Square Park, this little guy. Like stand up is an art form, but if you're going to do it in the park, you have to get everybody's attention that's just coming and going, and tourists, people that don't speak English. You have to be beyond alive to get the attention of people that are sunbathing, riding bikes, smoking a joint, an acoustic guitar, juggling, walking through Washington Square Park to get to a pizzeria. It's like, well, we got to stop it. Well, this is amazing. No ticket sold or bought, no promotion. So you have to supersede life as we are living it now and go top shelf. And he was so sick. Uh, also with me, it was a bit of a release and relief twofold because being an addict, he struggled his entire life. There, he died struggling. Neil Brennan and I saw him in the hospital the day he went, woke up blind. And it was, yeah, we're going to go see Charlie. And he walked into the hotel room and he's like, he's looking around trying to find us. And it was, you can't, you want to run out of the room and cry. Like, but then you realize that's not what he needs right now. He needs you to like maybe touch his body and just be affectionate because when people are sick, people don't want to go near them, specifically with certain ailments that people don't know a lot about. I never saw him do a drug. I represented him towards the end of his life until he died. He never did laundry. He would do a street show and he would take the money, go to the Gap, buy some new clothes and then give his clothes to another homeless guy. Rumor has it that he used to do this thing in New York City where him and Rick Avilas would get on either side of the train in Washington Square Park, the 4th Street Station, and they would work inside the train street performing for money. And they'd get off at Harlem, split the dollar bills, and they'd fist fight for the change. What a weird fight. Like, I don't know who you bet on to quote unquote. Dennis Miller, how'd you like to be lumped in with the rest of these winners? <laughs> Rick Avilas was the killer in the movie Ghost, for those of you who don't know. Charlie uh, was so sick for so long, you mentioned intravenous drug use. Um, so he was sick, you know, um, but he, when he died, me being an addict and that's before I got sober, I, I mean, I was going to do like heroin and I never seen Coke in my life or anything, but I was, I'm, a, I'm an addict. I get sober twice, you know? 
So I knew for him it was a release, having grown up with an alcoholic uh, parent and watching my mom get her act together when I was nine. And then the ab absence. People get old and they die. You have a grandparent, you watch them get older and older and older. Then they get sick, and that's what the whole family speaks about. But with Robin Williams, with Charlie, when it's somebody that brings that much and gets something out of somebody that they tell people everywhere they go, when that person goes, it's the first time I saw it as an absence. And it wasn't okay. Like, if somebody smiles at you and that tooth is missing in the front, you just can't go past it. You just stare at the gap. You know, there's all these teeth in the mouth. You're like, there's just, you're missing in the front. And that was the first death in my life. Where I was, so he's just like gone. It's, it's very hard to conceptualize. And the other reason they hit me so hard when you and I were hugging one another, when I got choked up was, My dad is, he loves me all the way, you know. But you were the guy, you would, you know, say, great job, I love you. So I just went towards you. I was out of the house. I had an apartment. I had to pay rent. When I had, like, the worst troubles, I'd go to you. And I was like 19, I think we're like pasta presto on McDougal Street. And you insisted on taking a cab. And to this day, I think you were trying to show off that you were loaded because <laughs> you went to pay $14 to go from your club to pasta presto. It's literally an L of like four blocks on a Saturday night on McDougal Street. And I go, you know, it's right there. And every time I reached for the door, you went, just allow yourself to relax and be driven to a night. Pasta Presto is like the Olive Garden in Manhattan. <laughs> I'm like, if I'm 19, I'm like, man, we're going to throw it around tonight. I had it, Norton. We all had it. And then I kept reaching for the door, and I'm like, I almost called this guy dad. And you've always had that father. That particular place we were going to was the place that I met with you where I told you I wanted to manage you. Yeah. And so my whole life, you've been the guy. I mean, we're still together, you know. For the kids. <laughs> 25 years. And my father just wasn't affectionate. He was just there was a life of apathy, a life of, he's not a bad guy. You've met him many times. He's not a bad guy at all. He's a, he's a, he's a kind and loving man. He's just not demonstrative. And I just, not like insatiably like a like fucking, uh, you know, Shirley Temple or sing out, Louise. I just needed somebody my whole, like, I remember Mr. T Tom Valenti, fourth grade, Mr. Roma. Uh, freshman year, criminal law, like just, I remember the Mrs. Cadmus, fourth grade, Mrs. Lano, sixth grade. I remember the actual adults that told me, how you doing? It was like, me? Because <laughs> I just never, nobody felt me particularly interesting in my home. My pop-up died, Jack Moore. Your grandfather. Jack Moore, yeah. Jack Moore in the high hats, president of Revlon. Beautiful guy, like class. He'd mow the lawn with a suit on, but he had a different suit. Because obviously, I'm mowing the lawn. I'm not going to wear my other suit. He was that guy. And it wasn't like a show. He was that cool. He ran for Senate, got demolished. <laughs> and he, uh, 
when he died, he's the reason I have the giraffe tattoo. Because I said he always had these giraffes in his house in Upper Montclair, New Jersey. The statue is made out of ivory and wood. And like there'd be one from like Judy Garland, one from Ray Bolger, one from Jane Mansfield, one from Pat Boone, one from uh, Mickey Mantle. It's just insane. I said, why do you? So when he was on his deathbed with dementia so bad, he was just staring at the TV and my MDV half-hour comedy hour special was on. He paused it. Uh, I, he didn't pause it. He just told me to turn it down. It was a hospital room. He didn't pause it. And he said, I need to tell you something. You seem to be the captain of your own ship. Like something about show business cracked through all the dementia and the foggy. And the like. he'd just tell you, like, I just got in a fight with a guy in the hallway. And you're like, okay. You seem to be the captain of your own ship. And he's pointing to the TV. He says, do you know why I collect giraffes, JJ? A giraffe has to stick its neck out for what it believes in. Every animal can get the fruit on the ground, halfway up the tree, midway through the tree. A giraffe can get the ones all the way at the top. It's a little more dangerous. You don't know what's in the branches. And it was like a four-minute bing, bing, bing. Did you know the giraffe's the real king of the jungle? Because a giraffe's kick will disembowel a lion. One kick, two pieces of lion, but they never kick each other, JJ. And then back to bed. So I got the giraffe tattoo because of him. So when he died... My father and I were in Millville, New Jersey at this tiny, small town, you know, like the town funeral home. And I, I walk into the restroom after, during, a little after the funeral. And my father, it's just me and my dad in the restroom. And my dad turns to me and he's like, his fucking, his dad died. And we just held each other and started crying. And my cousin, there's like one cousin, you're like, He's like 14, but I think he's on coke. You're like, I'm not sure. It's like, well, what are we talking about? Something's obviously wrong with his fucking brain. The one like troubled cousin. <laughs> this kid's like 16. And he's like, like one second into the hug, he's like, hey guys. And it's like, oh, like not his fucking dad died. That was the hatch to the submarine of emotion that I needed, that he needed. And then just back to, okay. Like, and now, you know, so. When I hold you, it flows, buddy. We, we, we've seen the well beneath the well. A lot of people go their whole lives and they never show anybody else the well beneath the well where the real water goes. Not where everybody goes. There's a well under that well. Are you sharing that? Then you're connecting. Well, you're such an affectionate, loving guy. You say I love you all the time. I never say it if I don't mean it. But are you saying that you never heard your dad say, Jay, I love you? He said it often. If I would say it to him, he would say it back. But without you saying it? No. And your mom, without you saying it, she would always say always. it? Always. Yeah. I think I was at a meeting once. It was like West LA. I walked into this AA meeting. I just looked at the... If anybody out there wants to get sober and you're like, what about the meetings? AA, insert town here, meetings, hit send, and a calendar will pop up. So just fucking stop being a baby. I knew you when you weren't sober. I don't think I've ever shared this with you. I was eight years old. There was this girl I liked on my street. And then I see this yellow Volkswagen come down the street, swerving back and forth and stopping in the middle of the grass of the yard. She got out of the car, reached for a bicycle, it pulled herself, did a complete flip, and all the kids were laughing around watching her. And I was in horror because I knew there was something wrong. And I looked in the window 
and I saw this young girl crying. When I saw her afterwards, I said, what's wrong? And she said, my mom is an alcoholic. She drinks, it's bad, and she can't control it, and I don't know what to do. You would drink until you were not functioning anymore. And so I fell down into a bed. I don't know why anybody else drinks any other way. It doesn't taste good. You can't put it on cereal. I'm going to have a beer. Why? I tried to do my best to get you sober, and I felt like I failed, and then one day you did it on your own. There's three C's. When it comes to addicts, you didn't cause it, you can't control it, you're not going to cure it. My story is very odd because I didn't really hit that bottom bottom. You're pulling your pants up in an adult bookstore and there's diarrhea in your shoes. And you're like, where did I get this $50 bill? I guess I have hit bottom. Good sermon, Father. <laughs> <laughs> you know the lieutenant governor? <laughs> eh. Oh, brap. <laughs> Want to get a monkey in an organ grinder? <laughs> Sorry. The Suicide Kings rap party was at the improv. Low budget movie. You could have a rap party at like Mr. Chow's or uh, let's go to the improv on like a Tuesday. It'll probably be free. And it's just assumed the whole way down the line, you'll just do stand up and be our headlining entertainment. And nobody said like, is that okay with you? There was no way out of it. We had a great time. The cast was great. Everybody got along. Leary, Walk, and Henry Thomas, Sean Patrick Flannery, Sisto. Galecki and everybody. And I drank at my house before I went out. I drank at the improv. I drank before I went on stage. On stage, I had a bottle of champagne while I was on stage. Got off stage, went to the bar to have champagne. Then I switched to scotch. The next day, I was with somebody and we were going over the hill to go to the beach, but it's like an hour, you got to go cut through the canyon. I said, I don't think I can go. Like I'm going to shit my pants. I have no control at all over my body. I'm so hungover. I said, why don't you do what I do? Just have like one or two drinks and stop. And growing up in the rooms with my mom as an alcoholic, I knew all the steps. I had memorized them because I went to all the meetings with her. Also, sidebar, at nine years old, that's why I get so frustrated. I finally figured out with shit that goes like time, time management, bosses, mid-level management. Because at nine years old... I watched the Alpha and the Omega of my life, my mom, go into a church basement in front of strangers and say, I surrender. I need help. I am a failure. And I watched this woman, brick by brick, build herself back together. And I met other people that would fall off the wagon, come back in. And I just watched this community, these 12 steps, these 12 traditions, this guy, first name only, that's his number, you call they. So when I walk into a workplace and nothing makes sense, it's like, Okay, how many cards are in the deck? Are we doing five a hand or seven a hand? May I look at it before we play? No? All right. But if I don't, anyway. So that's why I get so frustrated. But I knew all the language of AA. And that person said to me in the car on Lancashire and Riverside at that light, May 5th, 1205. Why do you have one or two drinks like I do and stop? I said, because once I have one or two drinks, I'm powerless. Oh, Stop talking, turned my car around, threw up, had diarrhea. The guy lived in the apartment complex. And that was it. I, step one, we admit we're powerless over drugs and alcohol and our lives have become unmanageable. And I said, because once I have one or two, I am powerless. It's just, you're done. And nobody's going to hold me to it, but me. But saying that out loud is the hardest fucking part to say out loud to somebody when you finally go into the rooms 
and it just flew out of me. And it was just done. You and I were at a strip club once during like spring break MTV. <laughs> <laughs> and Barry goes, All right, man, I'm gonna uh this way to check your messages from like a payphone and just listen. You couldn't even like delete. You had to listen to somebody's fucking Hey uh It's Louie. Hey uh, hold on. That's not my cat. Uh, huh? Abraham You know, we have three cats in here. And I can't tell them apart, but that's not my... No, I'm leaving a message for Barry. And you just sit there for 11 minutes, and you're like, fuck! So you apparently, I mean, you were a talent manager. 20 clients, all like in their 20s, and we all had gripes. Nobody reaches and cracks through to the uh, Yoda-like wisdom you and I carry around. So you're just standing by the phone, and you left your fucking platinum Amex at the strip club. The waitress goes, can I take that? I go, actually, not yet. I need a bottle for the lady. I need a bottle for the lady. And I need a bottle for myself. She goes, okay. Then can I take it? I go, sure. And you were there for like <laughs> 35 minutes with a phone to your ear in the corner as fucking Allison Chains, man in the box is playing. <laughs> you come back, you pick up the check, and you go, nobody move. <laughs> <laughs> your palms out. And you just keep staring at it, and you're like, something just hit those eyes wrong. You looked at it before you got up. And then finally, you look at me with the funniest face. You ordered three bottles of champagne while I was on the fucking phone. I go, yeah. Three bottles? Because the girls had left. I'm sitting there three empty bottles. And you were like, oh, Jesus Christ, man. You had to order the bottle. It was like dumb. It was like a thousand dollar bottle. Give me some of your finest champagne for these girls who I think really like me. <laughs> well, I was gonna say earlier, I went to this AA meeting and it was a teen meeting by mistake. The speaker comes out, he's 80. He's actually 80. He's an old TV director, like he did gun smoke and stuff. I don't recognize him or his name, and he, he's telling all these kids his resume and they're tuning him out. And I'm about to tune him out. I'm like, Jesus, old man, get to it. Cut to the manhole. <laughs> And he goes, let me tell you guys something. This universe, 90% takers, 10% givers. When you walk out that door before you hit the doorway, you make up your mind which one you want to be. So I got like five feet from the door and I stopped moving my body. I stood still and I looked at the doorway and I said, am I a giver or a taker? And I said, I take a lot, but I'm pretty sure I'm a giver. And then I was stuck with like the ambiguity of not knowing. And I said, I'm making a choice. I'm going to be a giver. From when I clear this doorway, I don't ever have to think twice about it ever again. Like bottles of champagne. I was a taker, but I still would do that. If it was fucking soda, it'd be funny. <laughs> you ordered three six packs of Pepsi while I was on the fucking phone, man. Why do they be 16 ounces? My mom, giver, 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 giver. You, giver, 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 giver. Because you said you tried to help me get sober. I asked Dr. Drew this on my podcast, like, you can do so much excavating and moral inventory that you're actually getting negative results and you actually become kind of sick. You give and give. This sounds kooky, but you keep giving and self-examining until you're like back and through the looking glass 14 times and you just go insane. At some point, you must say, I am no longer giving this kind of attention, at least, to that person because it's fucking killing me. You trying to get me sober. My mom trying to please my dad. 
She'll never stop dancing and giving. You can't talk to her without going, you know how great your dad is? It's like, no, I don't. But every time we talk, you tell me he's the greatest guy on earth. And he is a great guy. Like we said earlier, you can give and give. But there's also a thing that you were talking about, like Charlie, you give his clothing. At some point you go, I can't give my clothing to this homeless guy. He can't do shows in the park. He relies on me to give this small thing to him that keeps him going. This cycle is hamster wheel. It was just interesting because I didn't know that you tried to get me sober at all. Yeah. It's exhausting. Yeah. Being a taker is so easy. You're the but, reason I eat. I shouldn't have said that. No. <laughs> Jonathan, do me <laughs> You know what? Just leave it. Who cares? We <laughs> Emmy Award winner, Louis Anderson. Wow, beautiful. We love Louis. And your parents have always been so wonderful to me and so grateful to them. So tell me the first moment you remember where it challenged your sobriety. July this year, I was at a hotel. I was alone at a corporate show. I opened the refrigerator and the minibar and I just went, whoa. In shorter than what you would consider a synapse, I had the complete experience of, eh, I can't. I mean... You've been through so much. What a year. Oof. Drinking, regret, going all like the Buddhist, the, the wheel of Dharma. I went through all of that, like Last Temptation of Christ, when it's like an entire lifetime not lived in a blink of an eye. Like if Christ just eschewed the cross and got married and had children, those kids had children just in the blink of an eye. He has this lifetime. I had that open in the minibar at a hotel in July. And I went, whoa. I called uh, La Machine in Queens. I said, buddy, this just happened to me. And he goes, uh, why don't you just call downstairs and get some fucking cock? <laughs> just send up seven to 25 cocks and just have, you love the cock? <laughs> and I go, I do love the cock. And we talked about fucking dicks and different shapes of dicks, <laughs> sizes, colors, <laughs> for about a half hour, hung up the phone. Then I went to the mini bar. I went in there to make room for like my cans of soda. And then I just took all the booze out and I put it on top, uh, like next to the TV or whatever. But then it was, it was just gone. There's also times you fail when you take NyQuil for night shoots to help you sleep. And then two weeks go by and you go... I mean, my coverage is done. I'll just have some NyQuil, get a head start in that sleep. And then you go, wow, I drink two bottles of NyQuil a day. When I go to the bathroom, I shoot green pee out of my bottom <laughs> and I'm impotent. But NyQuil makes you impotent? Two bottles a day? You ever hear whiskey dick? No. I don't know why I said that like Norm, you know? <laughs> I don't know if you ever heard the expression whiskey dick. I don't want to misuse the Queen's English, you know? But see, uh, NyQuil dick... <laughs> No, it's not known what it actually is, because nobody would be that dumb to uh, drink so much without a cold. You know, the efficacy is that, uh, this is an addict, in a nutshell. This is well over 10 years ago. My dentist gave me 10 Vicodin after a root canal. I took a Vicodin, never had a pill before in my life. I get home, I'm playing like Madden, and all of a sudden there's like this, but the only way I can describe it, a golden hum, like a tuning fork vibration that you can't really see only like in a cartoon, but my whole body's got this little golden hum, man. Feels good. I take another one, 
Now I got a golden hum, capital G, capital H. I go into my downstairs guest bathroom on a black countertop. I open the bottle and I lay the pills out and I count to eight to make sure that guy didn't fuck me. He said 10. I took two. You know what, asshole? Three, four, eight. All right. Fucking fuck with my shit. I went, you have a problem. Wow. So, writing a book is the most rewarding because you craft it. It's not a half hour. It's You're talking about like, if you're writing about yourself, it's a life. If you're writing fiction, you're writing about make-believe lives that you actually create. Um, death of a comic hits me hard. And it's, I, this time on this couch with you is the first time I ever said that word and it hit me hard. It's an absence. Which comedian? It hit me the hardest. Robin Williams. Not even close. I never met. I saw the guy at the Emmys once. I could be in my car and convince myself like we were friends. I get so sad. He was so beautiful and made so many. The only person that he couldn't show how beautiful he was was Robin Williams. We look at him and we go, wow. And by the way, all those comics out there that go, oh, he fucking steals. Hope you're just high-fiving each other. Told you. He stole death. Everybody fucking dies, hack. People just love to throw shit. Just as acting alone. Uh, Where were you that day? I was at home, and it was just, who do you tell? I've had to deliver a lot of death news in the last five years. My wife's mom died. I got the call that she had died at 59 years old, Terry K. Cox. What a concept. I put the phone down. My wife's in the other room. You want to talk a space-time continuum? I have the power to not tell her. She won't know. If I just go to bed tonight, her mom's alive. I'm controlling time, space, life, as she knows it, is about to come out of my mouth. And I'm... You have to walk from here to that door with that. I've done that like four fucking times in the last two years. Don't answer your phone, man. <laughs>Let's go way, way, way back. Tell our audience where you were born, grew up, and when was the first thing that happened that inspired you to do stand-up comedy for the first time? Okay, I grew up in Verona, New Jersey, which is an old Indian word. <laughs> that means Italians live here. Man, very, 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 very middle class. Like if you put like a deck on the back of your house, it was like, what the fuck? Are they in the mob? They have a, an above-ground pool. <laughs> You're like, yikes. Uh, you made your own bikes. And my dad, I still don't know what he did for a living because he didn't really talk a lot. <laughs> Let me explain my job to you, son. Uh, my mom was a nurse, head nurse. Um, then she did blood transfusions. One of the first, She was a pioneer in blood transfusions for AIDS patients. We had a family meeting. She says, I have an opportunity to go to Manhattan and do blood transfusions for AIDS patients. And we all just went, well, what's the meeting? Like, what? 
like me and my sisters and my dad. I mean, dad wasn't there. Her and he had already spoken about it. Me and my sisters just were confused. Like, okay, so what's the meeting about? Because to us, it was go. Who doesn't answer that call? And in hindsight, I realized like in 1984, it was, it was a big, scary thing. And we were just like, of course you go. Never dawned on us like, mom, I get AIDS. Because that's what everybody's panic stricken. That's probably why I held Charlie so hard. So my dad did a weird job that you don't know. And just a classic, like the guy, like a Mike Judge cartoon that just at a desk, everything's beige. His skin is beige. His teeth are beige. His life is beige. The lifetime of, you know what I should have done? And the answer is everything. Um, I always loved comedy so much. My sisters were way older than me, seven and six years older than me. So I would listen to things that were way out of my age demographic. I'd be listening to uh, like Donna Summer. I'd be listening, like gay guys came over. Uh, black guys and black women came to the house. My mom's in AA. Also, there's a Puerto Rican lady named Martha taking me to Madison Square Garden to watch Jimmy Snook. I'm like walking around Manhattan with like a Puerto Rican uh, mamacita. Like, hey, this is good. I like this AA life. So there was always an incredible multicultural diversity in our home because my sisters were older and they had friends that they met like discos when they had discos and they'd be white, black, Puerto Rican, beige, brown, gay, really fucking gay. Uh, and then with my mom with AA, again, with that stuff. So I was always uh, around other ages and stuff. And so I've listened to like Joan Rivers albums because I remember this guy, Frank, Virginia's friend Frank was gay. And he's like, she's the best. And we're all of us sitting around like a speaker with a record listening to Joan Rivers. I don't do drugs every once in a while. I put some uh, club soda on my maxi pad. Oof. That's a pickup. <laughs> I was like, whoa. But I'm like way too young to understand this. But I get, I'm like, that's a great joke. And I knew which was bullshit. I'm like, that sucks. Then Star Search comes out. Then the influx of comedy. And I would tape all of it, just VHS tapes. And I was just like, that's my thing, man. I just love watching comedy. And there's an ad for, if you're a teenager between the ages of 13 and 18 or 17, and you think you're funny, come on down to Rascal's Comedy Club in West Orange, New Jersey, three to five minutes. I go, oh, of course. And my first thought, which is such a fucking light being put on in the room of who I am is fucking three minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Not how the hell am I getting three minutes? I go, oh, of course, I'm supposed to do that. I'll go, wait a minute, three minutes? The fuck? Like I'm complaining. <laughs> <laughs> uh, at 16 in my wrestling letterman jacket in James Barone's Buick Regal. <laughs> fucking three minutes. They got balls on them, James. Look, man, you're fucking Malibu. I'm in the palace edge. You're like, I'm going to go with my brown Birkin today over the shoulder Merce. Back then you had a fucking coat. That was your coat. That's why you want to go varsity. They give you a coat. Anyway, yeah, so I did stand up and then you do it, you do it, you do it, you do it. Tell us about that first time you went on stage. How'd it go? No, it didn't at all. It's uh, it's a pause. It's watching. You see like a music video and they slow it down. What was it? Corn? You see the bullet go through the apple? Do you remember that video? It's like a slow motion of like a bullet going through an apple. You would never see that in a billion years because you don't have eyes that can be slowed down. But if you take that visual, apply spatial relations, volume, the sound of your own voice, your concept of words and the language and where they're falling 
and where they're not going and you got something it, it was all of that a complete just underwater breathing properly experience but as buddy hackett said to me once the first time you went on stage everything you were thinking except the actual words out of your mouth 99.999% of the things that you were thinking were not what you were doing. What's that noise? Why isn't this guy laughing? That guy's got big glasses. Look at the ass. Is that an ice machine? But many people saw 0.00001 and went, that guy, what are you doing Wednesday? And I was like, Jesus Christ. He goes, no other business can you enter that shitty and have people say, come with me. We're going to be shitty and be a little less shitty. And then we'll be surgeons. When was the first time on stage where you said to yourself, I've got it, got the formula, I've got the blueprint, I'm not bombing anymore, I'm killing every time I go on? It's been about a dozen times and it happened this year again is you just keep, it's like the Winchester Mystery House where you go, okay, I'm doing colleges. I'm going to go entertain people at NACA at the Opryland Hotel. I'm doing colleges. I'm going to go, why do they say announce your major? Like you walk out on the quad today with a bugle. I it was like some old hacky joke. Economics. <laughs> and like, I'm just like you, like, well, I cracked the coat. Like I am a fucking comic. I go out to a college. It could be noon. These guys complaining about noon shows. I just keep going an hour and three minutes. I kill. I am the guy. Then you're headlining at like the Tempe Improv and you go, wow, like I have four closing bits. Any show, I can just like, don't want to smash, smash that watermelon, that watermelon, that watermelon, or that watermelon. They don't even know it. People see me twice, they go, you did like a, a whole different thing at the end. Then you do a different thing entirely. You go, I have two hours? Then you do Jiminy Glick. This was the absolute first whoof Apollo Gemini program of launching a missile and going, We're, we have zero gravity. We're weightless. So I go out on Jiminy Glick. He goes, I'm here with David Speed. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, how are you going to play it? I'm out there in real time going, hmm. I could be a little angry. I could be like, just act like I'm David Spade. So in real time, I have to put this thing together. But while I was out there, three minutes into like a 12-minute segment, no, it was long. It was a long one, actually. The whole half-hour show was you. And they didn't break for commercial. You went straight through it, then they chopped it up afterwards. I realized there was no pre-interview. Bernie Brillstein is the guy that asked me to do it. He managed Martin. You never fucking know. You want Jay Moore on Saturday Night Live? You never fucking know. I tell Lauren all the time. You never fucking know. He was Lauren's manager too. You never fucking know. He's the guy that said, do it. I'm out there with Martin Short and Michael McKeon. I realized they just trusted me. Like what if it sucked? Never crossed their minds. They feel about me as great as I feel about me, which is what bothers people about me. <laughs> so that was like, Wow. Martin Short, Bernie Brillstein, and Michael McKeon said, who's the guest? Jay Moore. Great. Let us know when he's here, and we'll shoot. Go. Where's your name, mate? <laughs> You've always sort of hovered around in the show business middle class. <laughs> so that was a huge one. After Saturday Night Live, like, you're a great comic. You, like, you know it because you're on Saturday Night Live. And then, like, 
Jiminy Glick happened way after that. Then you go to like Gary Unmarried. There's something needs a rewrite. It's not working. And you see eight writers going around and around. And there's a network guy and there's a studio lady. And you just go as a comic because everything's in real time. It's like the Zabruder film, but you can stop it, start it, stop it, start it. Like going in the room and delivering, your mom died. Nobody laughs until I say the magical sentence. Nobody grieves until I say that magical sentence. You're a time traveler. People don't realize it. So, um, on Gary and Mary, I'm watching all these people argue, not argue, but just trying to get it right. And I sit back, which is not my thing, as you know, and I go, she's fucking full of shit. There's no reason being there. That one, that one, that one, that one. That's the domino, the tip. And you go right over the guy and you go, hey, I'm probably crazy. Give my line to Paula. This entire page can, because they always want to get shorter. This entire page can go because at the end when he comes in, he says this word and that strings the whole thing. So you save a page. I don't give a shit about my line. Give it to Paula because I'm at the refrigerator and they go, and I just start writing shit down and I just hand it back to them like, because that's the way it goes. It's like, that took balls. It's like, no, that's just the way you let everything play out and you go two plus two plus two is six. Maybe I'm crazy. And they go, oh yeah, right. And they take the script and they walked away. And that was the one where I went. They trust me. When other people trust you with something like time and content, it's it just oof, it's another launch and another launch. And the, and the people that trust you get bigger and bigger. And when Buddy Hackett would just pick my brain, why do you think that is? And I'd be like, I don't know, but we start talking about it. And this year, uh, three years ago, I I came up the expression I came up with. They're just words unless they're the truth. And all these guys go up on stage. Like, if you're writing a set, how could you possibly be good? You're going to share with a live audience something you sat down at a desk that's made up. How? What joy is there? It didn't happen. How could you go like, oh, let me tell you something else? It didn't fucking happen. And I realized my entire act has already happened to me. So instead of sitting down and looking ahead to what I could do, I looked back into my, like, ghost riding your bikes I explained to a friend of mine last night. He goes, wait, so what is this ghost riding your bike? What is this ghost riding your bike? I don't get it. But the crowd was fucking kooks. They were nuts. I go, you literally ride your bike <laughs> towards there. You know what it is? Towards the stairwell or a brick wall and you just pop off the back of your bike. But it stays perfectly exactly as if you were on it. It looks like a ghost. And my buddy's like, wait, so you just destroy your bikes? You're like, yeah, it was the best. So, like, I did that in San Diego, and the crowd's like, oh, fuck. I was talking about Republican Party, Democratic Party. I'll run for president. You know what my party's going to be? Block party. <laughs> Close off the dead end street. Watch your parents get day drunk. Ghost ride your bikes through your friend's greenhouse. It was just like, you're just conjuring up these images that were there, and that there's few details that hit buttons in people. So... That was a big one. They're only words unless they're the truth. So go back into what actually happened with you and share it. Well, you were always the kind of guy that blew me away because you'd be submitted for an acting job, booking your first acting jobs, big jobs, big sitcoms. Then you go up for Saturday Night Live and you don't even seem like you care. You're wearing shorts, a t-shirt. East Stroudsburg girls soccer t-shirt and maroon hillbilly sweatpants. You know, that was strategic though. 
I figured everybody's been at home getting their like comedy shirt on, getting their hair the way they like it for their show, get the cuffs rolled up the way they like it, make sure they have the right sneakers that go with those like acid wash. I go, everybody's freaking out. I may not get the gig. I may not even do well. It was at Stand Up New York, which is like, it's not home or away. It's like doing NFL in London. You're like, how was it? I don't know. <laughs> they had this fucking stupid horns and they were chanting some shit about Tottenham. <laughs> I'm not sure how it goes there ever. And I was like, if I'm not funny, if I don't like move them, they're going to know that guy just didn't give a fuck. Somebody's going to go, who's the guy that just didn't fucking care? And that super calmed me because that was the character I was going to present to do stand up. And you see people like, like getting ready to go up and fucking doing push ups and shit. You're like, you guys are, and you see the absurdity around you if you slow it time. Comics and drummers, time. We know time. You, when you slow it down and go, I'm going to be the guy that just knows there is zero chance analytically, statistically, empirical data, there is a zero percent chance I'm going on Saturday Night Live. It is an actual impossibility. That's why I don't buy a fucking lotto ticket. Never have in my life, cats. So, if I know I'm not going to win the lottery, you hand me a $5 bill to buy a lottery ticket, What's where's the angst? So, somebody handed me the mic. I just went up, and I stared them down in the back left-hand corner, Lauren and Adam Sandler and Rob Schneider and Jim Downey, and then when I walked off stage, to the right, I passed all of them. I realized, I just stared down an investment banker for fucking 20 minutes. They thought they were in that in the room. And I'm like, Arsenio Hall, yeah, what's that about? I heard you did a movie or something, and something happened, man. <laughs> something happened when you did the movie. What was that about? And I'm doing like De Niro and fucking Batman Robin and De Niro and Pesci. Like, stop beating your bat, fat fuck you. And I'm just staring over there because that's where they are. And I'm going to show them I don't care. Some, some fucking Wall Street execs in the back going, is this kid trying to fuck me? Just never stop taking his eye. Am I a cuckold? He's just staring at me. He knows my wife's with me. But you get off stage, what happens? Marcy Klein runs up and goes, don't go anywhere. Lauren really liked you. Like, he really liked you. And then Lauren came out. There's a white limo. And I remember going, is that like a black prom? Like, how did I miss that? And I go, as I look to Lauren to speak, I'm about to go, hey, Lauren, who the fuck? It's a white limo. <laughs> and as I go to speak, Marcy Klein opens the door for him. And I go, hi, Lauren. <laughs> I just draw the end out. You were really, really funny. You'll be hearing from us uh, soon, soon, soon. Okay. So, okay. I'm like, you can't think about this at all. Like, you just got to delete, as you taught me. Delete. De gone. De just a blinking cursor where there were words, delete. Catawba, North Carolina, the next day, <laughs> co-headlining Catawba College with Anthony Clark. And me and Anthony Clark on this bullshit flight out of LaGuardia. Huge airport, two runways. Way to plan. <laughs> Sorry, Carlin. Metropolitan Airport, two runways. They crisscross. Have fun. <laughs> you can go. You stay. You stay. You go. Enjoy the river. I go back to my hotel. It was an actual Motel 6, not like comics being hacks. Like, we're like a Motel It was a Motel 6 next to a Cracker Barrel, next to a gas station where truckers can shower. 
And they're laying down too. There's a place to lay down, like coffins. Might as well be. And I'm gonna go take a nap. And Anthony Clark with his like skinny bean pole body, he's got the net in the pool. He goes, I'm gonna take a swim. I'm gonna get rid of all these bugs. <laughs> There's so many bugs in this pool, Jay Moore. He did that great bit. He goes, I'm gonna have a game show called I Don't Fucking Believe It. <laughs> it says here, Madge from Brockton, Massachusetts, uh, you are not retarded. <laughs> That's right, Anthony. <laughs> Remember that? It says here, uh, you're from Brockton, Massachusetts. You have seven children. Uh-huh. It also says, uh, Marge, you are not fucking retarded. That's right, Anthony. I've had five tests from four different doctors written four exams. I've taken blood. I'm not retarded. Well, why don't you step up to the lucky wheel and give it a spin? Because I don't fucking believe it. <laughs> Like, what? He just created this woman. So uh, I go up to my motel room, Motel 6. Ruth Ann Secunda, and you were on the line. And the phone rings in that room. I'm like, Ruth Ann was your agent at the time at uh, Abrams Artist. And the phone rings in the Motel 6. I go, hello. It's like, uh, Jay, Perry, and Ruth Ann. And I'm like, wow, my, my whole family died in a car accident. Like, they're all <laughs> uncles, aunts, nieces. Nah, like, I can, who knows? I'm in a Motel 6 next to a truck wash where you can <laughs> sleep, man. Don't you want to get some Z's? <laughs> Perry goes, are you sitting down? I go, I'm laying down. But then he goes, you got it. It was less than, I don't know, 16 hours later from that night on the sidewalk. And I'm like, it wasn't like, yeah. I go, let me call you. And if you remember, I go, let me call you guys right back. Because it felt like a bus rolled on top of me. It was so serious. You can't even like go, fuck yeah. Like you don't hold the Larry O'Brien trophy and go, we were down 3-1. Suck it. Yeah. Fucking high five. You're alone. It's you. Now you have to go do this. When you're governor, you're governor 100 years from now. It's not like, you know, former governor of Kansas, you're governor. 21 Tonight Shows. My next guest is a cast member of Saturday Night Live. No matter what else happened, that goes in. And I knew it, the seriousness of it. I'm like, who do you tell? Anthony. I go down the steps of the Motel 6, the big door, cack, cack. Big thick metal tours in a motel because they're everybody's gonna get killed, and he's still getting like there's like one bug he can't reach. <laughs> he goes, I swear to God, I don't, I don't fucking believe it. I go, hey man, he goes, can you? Are your arms longer than mine? <laughs> I go, what? <laughs> I can't reach it, man. Ah, and he puts his hand up like Blanche Dubois, like the back of his hand is for. But he's, that's you know he was that fucking hilarious, and he acted that uniquely. Where the fuck are we? I can't even get a fucking swim because there's a bug in the pool. I just got Saturday Night Live, and he looks up and the sun's in his eyes. He's squinting that sweet face. He goes, "Well, there goes that map." <laughs> oh, and that night, please welcome the newest cast member. Like it was. An, that's why I then headlined. Anthony said, you got to close the fucking show with that, man. You can't go up first. And it's not like, I'm not following that. Like, Anthony can fucking follow anybody. It's like Cedric the Entertainer. Like, he don't give a shit. He'll follow a fucking military funeral. The audience doesn't know right now, listening to this podcast, is I'm about to do live television in about 11 minutes. And Barry's like, now, after you were 16, then you had a birthday where you... I believe it's August 23rd, making you a Virgo Leo, <laughs> born on the cusp. 
Then you turn 17. Walk us through 17. All right. I'll wrap it up. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention a name. Tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Anything that comes to mind. Dave Chappelle. Hilarious. You know what's funny? I'm getting like colors and images. It's not words. And our craft is words. Yeah, I use the word fucking craft and I mean it. I pictured his face at Boston looking at himself in the mirror in the back of the room. I pictured him turning. Buck teeth and the Nutty Professor. Then I got Eddie going, shit locks. I'm like, don't say shit locks. <laughs> but it's all images. And the whole thing is what words. So I just, I landed on hilarious after 80 things. Ellen Burstyn. Mom. Clint Eastwood. Squint. Adam Sandler. Laba Laba Lou. <laughs> Louis C.K. Red. Tracy Morgan. Pregnant. Dane Cook. Instagram. Bill Hicks. Elvis. Chris Rock. Greatest. Helen Hunt. Bangs. Helen Mirren. Other Helens. <laughs> Helen Alice Spore of Woodland Hills. <laughs> Helen DeGeneres. Buddy Hackett. Oh, to be a Nagasaki where the women to the back and the men say, woo, waggy woo. Ray Romano. Oh, <laughs> wedding ring on the table spitting. Keanu Reeves. Whoa. Beautiful. Beautiful. Whoa did come first, but, oh, man, he's fucking beautiful. Clean. and Just clean. Eddie Murphy. Delirious? By the, I don't know. It's too much. It's a lifetimes. It's your whole life. I'm realizing now why. It's because there's, li you, like, to have land on a word is, you're faking it. Lauren Michaels. No, no, no. Kind. Christopher Walken. Military. Oh, this watch, probably. Finally, Chris Farley. The sun. The sun. The reason you get tan, because he's standing in a room next to you. Most beautiful man I ever met in my life. You can live eternally if you do it a certain way. I do that Chris Farley story on stage when I get up on the stool. He's there, it's every night. Yeah. Yeah. I'll never forget the words you used to describe Chris Farley and gasping for airtime a wrecking ball of joy see that's a book from 18 years ago and you just pulled a sentence from 340 fucking pages that i had forgotten you know you gotta do like chitter chatter like a courtroom scene like you have to have some noise in order for the judge to go order order he would just go because they always tell you like in acting like just like murmur a little hubbub but you go Murmur, <laughs> and the actors are pantomiming, and people are going like, "Hey, you know, red leather, yellow leather, red leather, yellow leather." Murmur, you, you go back and watch old SNL. Murmur, murmur, <laughs> spades gay, <laughs> and then like they cut to you as the bailiff, and you're like, <laughs> "We please stop laughing during dress rehearsal, Juju." Yeah, I'll get on that. I don't know if you know, when he tousled my hair, I'm wearing a wig, and it went over the side of my face. <laughs> I've never done live TV before. No one's explained it to me. Do I fix said wig? <laughs> or do I just sit there with a crooked wig, because no one saw him do it, because that fuck knew when the camera was not on him, when it was behind him, and he timed out the goddamn shots, so we can go, how about you, young, with his cross eyes, it makes you laugh. Like he, like, he knew what was happening, like... He was watching it from somewhere. He was watching us from some. Does that make sense? Of course. He knew which camera was on. And when it was only on you, it's not like you have a monitor in front of you. You're on a fake living room. Motivational speaker. Hola, <laughs> oh, <I'm> most niños. <laughs> Mi amo, Matt Foley. 
Padre done they por favor fair mate done grand yapper and then he would just call then he knew it was only my face and he goes completely cross-eyed he goes how about you young fella <laughs> and on TV you just see him bending over you don't know he's got that kooky face and you're like this guy is a fucking amateur like no I'm not I'm enjoying this I'm help I am powerless over that joy and I accept your proudest moment in show business proudest getting nominated for a Grammy for stand up I cried I was in the bathroom shaving my phone vibrated it's never I never bring it in and I went wait a minute I was on airplane mode it's off air oh I just take it off airplane mode and it was just it, I had 28 just from like 5 a.m. You got nominated for a Grammy. And I just went, wow. I sat down. I didn't know. It's like, holy shit. Out of all the albums I get submitted, which is all of them. But then the realization, I had no idea this could possibly be this important to me. It's like the floor going out. You land after like 10 stories and they go, no, no, no. We're not done. And then that floor goes out. You're like, holy fuck. And then that floor goes out because you're like, no, stop. Put a floor in. Of course, and no, you never knew because nobody gets this call. It is an honor just to be nominated. But I'm going to tell you this. When they say, <laughs> been nominated for an Emmy, been nominated for a Grammy, Emmy again. It is an honor to get nominated. You're like, fuck it. I put up my three-pointer. I'm Big Shot Rob. Suck it. Game seven, I don't give a shit. I don't know if you saw what I just did in game six, the fourth game seven. And then it's game seven and they go, uh, and the nominees are, and you look at the monitor, it's like five faces, you're like, 20%? <laughs> you fucks. Oh, no way. And they go, Louis C.K. And you go, that's the only guy. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, the, the year I was nominated, it was like, Lampanelli is the best. Craig Ferguson is the best. And, Lisa Lampanelli, my podcast goes, you know who won when I was nominated? The fucking flight of the Concords. <laughs> I go, I would have fucking burnt down the auditorium. She goes, that album, I go, is 18 minutes long. I go, it's, it's, you're right. Unacceptable. She goes, you and I are nominated. If I lose to you, great. I go, that's how I feel. It was Louis, Greg Ferguson. Wyatt Sinek, a great comedian. Wyatt Sinek, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's really fucking funny, man. Yeah. Super clever. And he's one of those guys that looks like a hipster. When you listen, you watch it again and again, like you do with comedy. You go, oh, he actually is that hip. Like, you are the guy that wears a fucking backpack to the press conference. <laughs> like, I don't know, that's where I put my shit in my backpack. I'm cool. I'm going to listen to some vinyl. <laughs> your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel your career to the next level. Like, there's things that, like, I was just dumb, but, like, I don't have a disappointment or regret about, like, Blue Streak. Like, they want you to come in again. I'm like, fuck that. I'm doing Caroline's this weekend. Sorry. I went in twice. Like, no, you're going to get it. Just go in. If I'm going to get it, then I should get it. You're going to let this thing go away? What if a movie makes a hundred? I don't care if it makes a hundred. I know what you're going to say already. If it makes a hundred million dollars <laughs> 10 years from now, I won't give a fuck. Yeah, but I don't give a shit that Blue Streak made. I can look back and go, man, I have a totally different trajectory of a career. Because I have a comedic lead up, said Martin Lawrence. To me, that was a disappointment because your agent at the time represented Luke Wilson. And Luke was in L.A., you were in New York, and Martin went to L.A. 
Right. In all fairness, I was begged in several days of me going, I'm not fucking going. Oh, you mean like when Dane Cook went in and got Mr. Uh, Brooks? <laughs> it was really disappointing. He's your manager, me, uh, <laughs> represented Dane. And you had the part in Mr. Brooks <laughs> where you get to play a serial killer where only you, Kevin Costner, and William Hurt is his conscience. It's revolutionary idea. Yeah, sure, man. Demi Moore comes in in the middle and fucks the whole place up because it's who gives a shit. But uh, remove her from the equation. You remember last month when I said, I got a movie for you and Eddie Griffin. You and Eddie Griffin. It's $500,000. And you go to film it in Africa. <laughs> I go, cats? The answer is no. What? I'm going to tell you why. Next time you call me with that information, say, how'd you like to go to Africa <laughs> to pick up 500000 You get to see Africa for half a million dollars. And I'm going to go, whoa, what's the catch? Eddie Griffin. <laughs> and fuck it, I'll do it. That's the only catch. Eddie Griffin, man. You went Eddie Griffin. You guys are boat police. We were boat cops. You went Eddie Griffin. Stop saying it. Half a million dollars in Africa. No, I don't know. What is my biggest disappointment? I know what your biggest disappointment was. I know what it is, and I'll say it here for the first time. I'm living in it. The radio show has taken 80% of my time every single day. I have a five-year-old son. Why isn't daddy home? And I do it all the way, anything I do. And when you have meetings about your passion, about your heart, crazy. But you give and you examine and you keep examining and you lose weight and you don't come upstairs until 2 a.m. and your wife says, are you avoiding, can we talk? Are you avoiding me? Because that's how little you're actually with your family because you're on the internet looking for a way to prove immeasurable things like passion, heart. Because it's not that. I only have passion, heart, and good attitude. My son is, it's, that's the whole, the bridge over the river, the tunnel under the river, the doorway into the next room, the laundry you put on your back, the laundry you put in. It's me and him. It's, it's insane, the connection, the ease. I'll come home, like, I'll be crying. There'll be three grown-ups. He's like, I don't want to put on my shirt. And I go, hey, buddy. And he looks at me mid-tantrum. And in his eyes, I can see him go, yeah, this is all just fucking bullshit. <laughs> and then I just wait. Because it's like, wait, da if daddy's not going to be happy, if I know any of that has happened, I get nicer. So it's like, he was terrible. He spit at me. And I go, oh, you want to get ice cream? <laughs> I fucking handle it. I'm coming home because I only want to see you two. And there's a problem. So radio has taken uh, time. And I just didn't know I was going to button this entire fucking discussion. Because I've been obsessing over time and traveling time. Carrying messages through time of death and life. And it's taken time from me. Last question. What advice do you have for the young artist somewhere in a town like Verona, New Jersey? And how do they get to have the kind of career that you have? 
you can only have the kind of career that you will have. I don't have the kind of career anybody else has. And Newhart doesn't have the career anybody else had. First gold album of Warner Brothers, man. I know, Barry. And that's the album on your wall. <laughs> when you take it on the other side of the wall so the sun doesn't set on it every day and it's just a white piece of paper. <laughs> <laughs> you can't see Newhart on it? I can make it out if I squint. This is how I talked about right in the afternoon, like I'm painting on public access television. A little bit of green right there across Newhart. See, the end is green. It's an eye grabber. Repetition, artist, any genre, just keep repetition, 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 repetition. If you don't have a crew, if you're very young, if you don't fit in really anywhere, that's the best thing in the world because you're not like the others. Don't be like the others. Nurture whatever that garden is in you where you grow different things than others. And people go, hey, this guy's like always with his, he's always like writing shit down. Hey, uh, Shakespeare, go double down on whatever the negative is. You said little town. Whatever the negative is about you, like, hey, fag, be the fucking gayest guy in town. Whatever it is. Hey, hey, hey uh, basketball man, just watch this. To the point where they say it, it circles back and they actually look absurd. Like you walk up to Derek Jeter and go, hey, shortstop. People go, what you, why would you call? Because he thinks he's a fucking shortstop. No, he's Derek Jeter. Just keep doing it. Keep doing it. Keep doing it. I can't. I don't know where to do it. Then don't do it. If that's your conversation in your head, you should not do it. I know guys that stood at a ground round while people were being seated and went up and down the line with goddamn peanut shells on the floor doing stand-up. When I was 17, I was driving around Montclair, West Orange, East Orange, East Orange. Yikes. <laughs> Caldwell, Pinebrook, Montville, from bar to bar to bar. Do you want to have comedy night? I'll do it for free. Do you want to have comedy night? I didn't realize that I was doing somebody else's podcast. They're like, you did that? Well, who told them? And I'm like, yeah, I just thought it was normal. <laughs> I wasn't old enough to get in the bars. I'm like, I know I'm not old enough. I don't have an ID. Is he the owner? Can I just clip the New Jersey? Can I just speak to, is that Fat Sal? Can I talk to Fat Sal? Would you like to have a comedy night? But there was like 40 of them. The 41st was re, R-E dash L-Y-N-N, like re, like repeat. I don't know, but the Lynn, like a lady's name, re Lynn's in like a pack home New Jersey. It was a boathouse. She was like, bring on equipment, I guess. I'm like, great. I'll take the door. Two bucks. If I get 10 people, that's more than 10 bucks. <laughs> and everybody from the, the restaurant I was working at came. Uh, but the night before, I went, <gasps> in bed, Valley View Road, in my bottom of my bunk bed that I never got rid of. I went, I don't have any equipment. <laughs> never crossed my fucking mind to go, I'm going to need a mic. If I show up, everything's cool. Not without a speaker and electricity, it ain't. It's a boathouse with a fucking bar with hillbillies at it. And so uh, one of the guys at the restaurant played guitar, and I go, can I borrow your amp? Do you have a mic? He goes, I don't know. I go, what? And I made it like he was a jerk. Like, how the fuck do you not know if you have... So it's an amp and a mic as long as this one, but you had to stand next to the amp because the mic was only seven, six feet long. But he stood, if you shift your body weight... The feedback, so everyone's just standing with the mic and tilting their body and nobody at the bar turned around, which is probably a good thing. Repetition, double down on whatever people think is your negative. Because that's you. As uh, Cat Williams says, if people say shit about you for 20 years, it's true. 
Jay Moore, I'm honored that you did this for me right before your live show, and I love you so much. I love you, Dad. You're the only guy I would be in bed right now. Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. Landing on Paula Hill from Tatum, Texas, 75691. You are a JFK winner. Also, I figure... I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. Landing on Hardison, August 27, 2013. Heading is Inside the World of Hollywood Five Stars. It reads, Fantastic interviews with the people behind the scenes of movies and TV. Love it. Highly recommend. Well, this has been another episode. If you guys like me, my name is Barry Katz. If you don't like me, <laughs> that's the old fucking thing we go. I'm Byron <laughs> Allen. Tell all your friends. They say it's the glory. I'll scream your name. Put you on shoulders, walk you to fame. You'll get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going for. Life is for the dreamers, they have all to gain. It's never quite over. So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.